You are listening to This is Oklahoma, hosted by Mike Hearn, telling stories of Oklahomans and those that have made it their home. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of This is Oklahoma podcast. Mike Hearn here, your host, back with another episode. Excited to share this episode with you today. But before we do, I've got to thank our sponsors. First of all, the Oklahoma Hall of Fame. They've been a huge part of this podcast for the last few years. So the Oklahoma Hall of Fame have been sharing Oklahoma's story through its people since 1927. For more information on the Oklahoma Hall of Fame, go to www.oklahomahof.com. And for daily updates, go to Oklahoma HOF on Instagram and give them a follow. Our other sponsor today is the Chickasaw Nation. Now, the Chickasaw Nation have sponsored pretty much everything in Oklahoma. They're a huge supporter of Oklahoma. And it's an honor to have their name and their brand supporting this podcast. So a huge shout out to Governor Anatoby for supporting this podcast. It really means a lot. Our third sponsor is Diffie Ford Lincoln down in El Reno. Now, this one makes me so happy because these guys are great friends of mine, um, play a lot of golf together. I've bought my cars from them. Do most of my oil changes down there, have a cup of coffee, hang out down in El Reno. It's a good spot to go. And not only are they great friends, but they provide a great service. So for over 60 years, a third generation family owned Oklahoma business down in El Reno. They're also in Bethany as well. So people in the Bethany area know the Diffies really well. But if you're looking for anything new used, um, Ford, Lincoln, or whatever, I'm sure they could find anything you want. Um, check them out, diffieford.net, and then on Instagram at diffiefordlinking. This episode is brought to you by Hope is Alive. Hope is Alive exists to radically change the lives of drug addicts, alcoholics, and those who love them. Join us on August 11th at the National Cowboy and Western Heritage Museum for a celebration of hope featuring guest speaker Tim Tebow and musical artist Ben Fuller. Find out more and get your tickets at hia10.com. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of This is Oklahoma. Mike Hearn here, host, back with another episode. Today, we are in Oklahoma, downtown Oklahoma City at the Continental Tower. Um, gives me great pleasure to welcome our guest today, Mr. Harold Ham. Oh, thank you, Mike. Thank you for inviting us in. Uh, thank you for sending me, uh, thanks to Lincoln for sending me the copy of the book that uh, will be coming out shortly, Game Changer. I uh, had a great time reading it, learned a lot about the oil industry being from the UK, there's a lot of things I didn't know. Uh, and as you're very aware, Europe gets its oil from Russia, which is never a good thing. I'm sure people think that too, but <laughs> stay away from some of those uh, things. But no, I had a great time reading it. Um, you know, a lot of people, obviously, everyone knows your name, everyone knows you and the business in Oklahoma um, and around the country. Uh, before we dive into the book, um, tell me a little bit about kind of your, you growing up Lexington, going to Enid. Just tell me a little bit about kind of your origin story. Well, thanks. Uh, you know, I started uh, off uh, a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> like I say, uh, born in Lexington, Oklahoma, just north of Lexington uh, on a farm and uh, grew up a uh, large family, uh, last of 13 uh, children, uh, my parents and uh so it was uh, a fun time uh, growing up. Uh, for the most part, we worked hard, and my parents uh, worked as sharecroppers. Uh, we never owned land, uh, as a lot of people didn't back then, but uh, uh, worked hard to raise crops and, and uh, provide for our family, which we did. And uh, so uh, I was there. Uh, for a long time, uh, went to Northwest Oklahoma, like you said. Spent 40 years in Northwest Oklahoma in the oil, oil and gas 
uh, chased oil, oil industry yeah. and uh, enjoyed that as well. Uh, been here in Oklahoma City, uh, you know, the past uh, dozen years. Uh-huh. And uh, to find Oklahoma City to be a wonderful place. Yeah. In the book, you, you kind of talk about, um, you know, the, the the oil document that you wrote as a kid, right? The, the, the project you had in school and you wrote about oil. Before, because that's kind of like your, your, like, I don't know, baseline, right? That's where you find the love for, I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. You kind of find your passion thanks to, um, you know, a few words from Frank and when he, the pottery scene and, and all of that. Is there anything before that time that you had a dream, what did you want to be before the oil and the passion comes in through through that? Is there anything before, like what did you want to be when you grew up before that moment? You know, there wasn't uh, uh, a lot of, you know, I knew I was going to, uh, you know, do well because I, I had great work ethics. Uh, coming off farm, that's what you did. And, you know, you could, uh, you know, take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... Uh, really, uh, I think being around the oil industry uh, in Enid, uh, you know, kind of my formative years uh, from junior and high school forward, uh, you know, I found that entirely different. I'd grown up in a farm community, uh, a rural uh, community, and uh, that was uh, what I knew. And to be around... Uh, uh, you know, something as dynamic as oil and gas, uh, you know, fast moving, uh, you know, different uh, breed of people, so to speak, uh, highly uh, charismatic folks, uh, some of them a little bigger in life almost, and uh, very generous uh, people that, that help you. They helped me uh, and, uh, you know, taught me uh, something I, I didn't know. So it's really a, a contrast. And uh, that caught my attention. I want to know more about it. And uh, my distributive education class in, in school gave me that opportunity. And so I did. I wrote a thesis on it. I still have a copy of it. Uh, uh, and anyway, I go back to it some. I, I had a portion of it in, uh, in the book. And, uh, it's, you know, I, I find it kind of rudimentary, but it's... Uh, uh, it certainly was enough to stir my enthusiasm for uh, what I wanted to do later in life. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, so I owe a, a whole lot to uh, Jewel Ridge, uh, my DE uh, instructor and uh, kind of mentor, uh, as he got me kind of on that path. You mentioned John Frank's uh yeah, he he, he uh, encouraged me to look around, uh, as he did at all the kids he talked to, uh, find something they were passionate about and, and go for it, mm-hmm. and something you would enjoy. And so that's that's what I did, and I've never looked back. Uh, you know, some tough times in oil patch, uh, different times, but uh, all in all, I've, I've enjoyed it. I still do. Uh, I have fun every day. Yeah. Yeah. In the book, you kind of, ref- you've referred to it as, you know, kind of being Indiana Jones, right? It's a feeling of exploration. It's exciting, you know, the unknown and, and then the thrill of, of striking, you know, finding yeah. things. It's, it's, it's like hunting, right? You know, there's so much fun in that. And yeah, there are tough days and bad days, but I'm sure there's still to this day, there's a thrill of, 
you know. It is. You know, there's nothing like uh, wall cutting. Uh, you know, you come up with some geologic concept or engineering concept and and then uh, uh, go try to uh, develop that. And, you know, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, it's uh, the, the joy of fighting a battle and mm-hmm. and coming out on top uh, is what you're trying to do. So, uh, you know, there's a, you know, a lot of times you're fighting elements. Uh, uh, Mother Nature herself sometimes cooperates, sometimes she doesn't. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it's a... Uh, something like Indiana Jones for sure. Yeah. So that moment you 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 write that you know write that thesis in school. You know you're like this is my passion. This is what I'm going to do. Um, how long is it after? You, how long after that do you go to work in the industry? Because you got to drive a truck, right? Yeah. I uh, I, I I wanted to uh, get in the get in the patch. Uh, you know, so you look for ways to start. Uh, you know, it, it would have been nice if I could have afforded uh, college, and I couldn't. Uh, and so I went to work, uh, and went to work in the service industry uh, for uh, a contractor. And, and anyway, uh, uh, got involved there and and uh, enjoyed uh, the the beginnings it's tough uh, <laughs> uh, when not look back on it but you know it, it got me started and and uh, so uh, owe a lot to those early days yeah and in the book you talk about kind of you know you're working for a company you convince them to expand to a little bit further outside of town you do that you get to about ten trucks but then you come to the decision of you know I'm working I'm making a good living but you know, you decide to go on your own. You decide to to leave that job, a good income, and decide to take a risk and go on your own. Tell me yes. about that. Uh, yeah, it. Uh, uh, I I worked for Champlin Petroleum for a short stint, which was a very good job. <laughs> uh, looking back on it, uh, you know, as union uh, pay and his good pay and everything, and but it just wasn't for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was working inside a plant, and uh, and I missed uh, you know the excitement of being out in in the field, and uh, so I just, I just couldn't do it, do that anymore. So uh, I decided to uh, uh, you know go out on my own, and kind of against the, the advice of a lot of people, uh, <laughs> they said, "Boy, you don't do that." <laughs> <laughs> Did it anyway? Yeah. Well, I mean. No one would know. A lot of people in that situation, right? That you know, you grow up. You're you're the youngest of thirteen. You know, you you have secured a great job. You're working. You're earning money. At the time, looking around you, a lot of people would deem that successful, right? And yeah. You decided that something inside you tells you, no, I'm, I I got more in me. I can do something more with this. I'm going to take a risk. Yeah, there was. I you know maybe that was where the dreams uh, really began, and uh, I thought you know I can I know I can do this, and I, I sit down and. Systematically, kind of laid out my uh, head and and uh, uh, you know my plan, and you know I thought if I put in a, a day's wage for day's pay out there, I was gonna make it. Yeah, and I did. I uh, you know it it uh, had a business plan going in, uh, and uh, you know a lot of lot of hard work, days and nights, and everything that uh, that made it happen, mm-hmm. but. 
you know, worked out. And we uh, went on to build a very, very large service company uh, in several. Mm-hmm. And, it, uh, you know, following that same concept of always having a good business plan and customer always come first uh, and, uh, you know, uh, never try to uh, get ahead, use the, you know, the best integrity that you can, uh, you and everybody around you can have and operate that way. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it, it, it worked out. We built some of uh, the very largest uh, companies uh, in the service side of it. And uh, later on, uh, actually, those, those companies were put into an entity that was taken public and uh, it, was, uh, it was a very nice thing. Yeah. Tell me about Enid at that time, because I, I was in Enid yesterday, actually. I did an um, interview with Carl Williams, um, who has Jiffy Trip and a few other businesses. But I was up there yesterday, and just driving up there reminded me of how much business is going on in and around Enid. I think people forget about it. And obviously, when you were there, and, and you know, there's a lot of, like, you know, you think of other Oklahoma Hall of Famers, Grondike, and, you know, there's plenty up there. Enid, I think, is underrated in most people's eyes but you growing up there around that a lot of business going on i'm sure it excited you at the time as well yes uh you know like enid um enid's a a good place uh there was so much going on when i first went up there it was unreal uh the sooner trend oil field was booming uh northeast enid field was being drilled um you know it was uh yeah, just so much happening back then that, uh, you know, really, really uh, turned me on to Enid. And uh, it's a great place to live, uh, you know, good community. Uh, Vance Air Force Base has uh, grown, and everybody's always thinking, gosh, we're going to lose that. But, you know, <laughs> it just kept getting better uh, uh, through time. And uh, a lot of great people, uh, farm uh, community people, up there as well, and uh, so it's a uh, it's a good place to live. And I, I hate leaving there. Uh, it was just not uh, big enough, and uh, with enough talent pool uh, at the time for us to grow was what eighty two with Continental. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it forced us to relocate. Mm-hmm. So nineteen seventy four, you buy your first drill. Uh, Tell me about that. Tell me about that first well, and was it 1974, right? Yeah, actually, guess, yeah. Uh, we we started drilling earlier than that. Um, our first well was 1971. Okay. And uh, stepped out and drilled uh, Wildcat, the next well out from that. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, uh, it was over five miles from uh, Nair's production. And anyway, that worked, uh, worked real well, uh-huh. which we really needed that to happen right off the bat. You need some really good things yeah. uh, to, to occur because, you know, uh, you're out on limb. Uh, and, and it did, you know, uh-huh. well come in real, really nice. And uh, I think what you're referring to, 1974, uh, you know, we, uh, with the discovery of the Wildcat that we drilled, uh-huh. uh, 
we, we, we drilled the, the E. Cook uh, one in 1971, that first well drilled, and like September of 71. Uh, 72, we stepped off and drilled this wildcat uh, out on the Bradley, uh, and which really uh, kicked off uh, this, uh, uh, we call it the Aline Oswego play. And with that uh, came the need for uh, us to drill several, a lot of wells, and couldn't get drilling equipment. So in 1974, uh, we bought uh, our first drilling rig. So that's what you're referring to in 1974. And it's significant. Uh, From that point on, I was always in the the drilling business until... Um, you know, the late uh, 90s, 1997. And through that experience, uh, working uh, with drilling iron and uh, learning, uh, you know, all of the the different uh, techniques of of the drilling industry, uh, that's really uh, the basis for uh, creating... Uh, horizontal drilling uh-huh. for me. Uh-huh. One thing that stands out in the book as well is that you always look for opportunity. And, and I think one of the quotes in the book is, you know, your opportunity in the opposite direction. So everyone's going this way and you're like, hang on a second. <laughs> Let's not follow the herd. Let's go this way. Where does that come from? Well, it's, uh, it's important not to uh, follow the herd. And yeah. uh, actually, Usually, uh, you need uh, to be going the, the other direction. Uh, uh, that's what leaders do. They they create their own pathway, and uh, so it you know it, it it's it's not easy uh, uh, to uh, to go the other, the other direction. A lot of times, uh, people really shake their head and wonder about you. And, you know, you're buying when people are selling, and you're selling when everybody's buying, you know. That, that, that's, that's what you need to be doing. <laughs> uh, so in, anyway, it's, uh, uh, you know, being being that uh, uh, controversial uh, investor. But, you know, that's, uh, that, that, that's what we still do. I mean, it's like taking a company private, uh, you know, when everybody else in public market. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, it's looking further down the road. It's the perhaps uh, I don't uh, put myself in the class of Warren Buffett, but certainly Warren uh, is one of those type of uh, investors, uh, one of those type of people that looks past what everybody else is doing. And sees the future on down the road uh-huh. and uh, acts accordingly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and because you've done it for so long, it's just routine now. But early on, that, that you know, very early on, that's such a huge risk because you, yeah, you you may think in 30 years and this is going to become, or 10 years down the road, this is going to become a thing. But I'm sure, like you said, there's a lot of people thinking, Ham's lost his mind. You know, you're like, what's going on here? <laughs> but then again, you stand there at five, three or four, five years later and you're like, you know. Yeah, it comes from trusting your gut. Uh, you get a gut feel. Uh, you know, it's like uh, the height of the boom in uh, 1981. We owned a whole lot of drill rigs. Uh, 
26 drilling rigs, so we're really committed to uh, that uh, business. And but it it got too good to be true, and I just got a gut feel that this is too good to be true. And uh, so I, I put those rigs up for sale, and and sold them and closed April seventh, nineteen eighty two, and everybody thought, gosh, what's he doing? That's a money make machine, and it was. We had been prepaid for over half the the drilling that we would do the following year. It was that good, and but anyway, I felt like this thing gonna come to a quick end. Penn Square failed July 4th uh, of that same year, 1982, and that was the beginning of the end of that boom. And pretty soon, uh, drilling equipment was a nickel on the dollar in value. Which you ended up buying back, right? yeah, <laughs> which yeah. is great. Right, yeah, bought it back, nickel on the dollar. Yeah. Uh, I took those rigs back and... Uh, 1985, and uh, uh, after the company basically had failed, it uh, didn't file bankruptcy, it, but it, the bank encouraged me to uh, come back in. So we uh, uh, we did, and uh, and which I'm glad we did, and and uh, we saved a lot of people's jobs, and and uh, kept people working, and and uh, built built the company back. Uh, and uh, sort of right thing to do. Yeah. So the horizontal drilling comes around, and you know, like I said, you feel like we're sitting on something here. We've we've really found something. Well, it it came around really really slow. Uh, you know, it is a, a sequence of a lot of different things happening uh, that basically gave us the ability, an idea we could even do it. Uh, a lot of it was uh, highly directional work that we was doing on the edges of uh, cities or under cities. And uh, uh, right here under Oklahoma City, for instance. And was in contract drilling business, so was, we could do that and knew we could do it and did. Uh, drill wells under Oklahoma City. Drill 16 wells under the city of Enid. Uh, how to deviate wells. Um, and we found out that uh, a lot of these angle wells and uh, where you were in the zone, uh, in the formation, quite a bit longer would produce uh, considerably better. And uh, uh, so anyway, we uh, thought, wow, this is, we need to try this. So we did as early as, I think, 1978 uh, in West Oklahoma in Cleveland. And uh, so, anyway, it uh, one of the first field we, we started looking for uh, uh, formations that we could try this in that would be adaptable to it, and we found one finally uh, in uh, North Dakota uh, in Cedar Creek along the Cedar Creek Anticline, and which really extended the field up there. It'd been drilled uh, right on the crest of the incline uh, uh, and with vertical wells, and they'd gone kind of far as they could uh, with that uh, production. Uh, 
but they ran out of it being commercial. And so we came in and, and took leases uh, uh, down this thing, uh, 250,000 acres of leases, in fact, and uh, uh, and and tried a couple wells. You mentioned the Peterson. That was one of them. Uh, that was one of the first ones, uh, it and the Ponderosa. And we started with two rigs uh, on on that uh, extension of that field. And and uh, what really the shock was that I had in the book, uh, at night you could not see one rig from the other. That's how far apart we was with the first two wells we started with. And I thought, wow, this is a, <laughs> I hope this thing uh, is as big as I think it is. <laughs> uh, and it was. Uh, and uh, these make great wells. Uh, it wouldn't produce vertically, uh, but horizontally, you know, we had 700 barrel day production. Uh, so this turned out to be a, a really good uh, confirmation for horizontal drilling. And this became the first ever oil field drilled uh, strictly with horizontal wells. There was not any vertical wells uh, in this 75 mile extension. Yeah. So, is that at that moment do you realize that America can be energy dependent? You know, like doesn't have to worry about anybody else. We can because of that find. Or were you kind of thinking? Well, it was uh, it was a rev big revelation to me. Yeah. It, but I don't think at that time we were thinking totally. That America could be energy independent. Uh, that came later, okay. uh, which wasn't a whole lot later. Uh, there's hardly anybody involved with horizontal drilling at this time. Mm -hmm. In fact, that entire field development on Cedar Creek Anticline, us uh, Continental and Burlington Resources, one other company, uh, was the only two companies ever drilled a well in it. Uh, so it's very, very rare for anybody else to even be involved. Um, but when really uh, began to think that uh, America had a chance to become energy independent was after we found the Bakken and, uh, and began developing it and saw, and particularly after we unlocked the code uh, of the, the shales themselves. Uh, and that was in, within the Bakken. And uh, probably by 2010, uh, I was thinking that we could, we could truly become energy independent in this country. Mm -hmm. And uh, I started to profess that a little bit. <laughs> and, of course, people didn't believe me. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, before we get into that, so going back a little bit, so, you, you know, horizontal's working, you're in North Dakota, you find this, um, and, you you know, you you deciding that, hey, we, we need to throw all our resources at this because we've kind of hit, you know, struck our huge opportunity here. What's going through your mind then as, you know, back over the years, you you know, you, you've had this gut feeling, yes, it's high risk, but you trust your feeling, and you you know you've got this company now. It's a lot more risk when you have a bigger successful company, and you're saying, "Hey, we need to go throw millions of dollars at this because it's going to pay off." What is that moment like in the company's history? And are you going to you know how do you finance all of it instead of 
one at a time. Well, there, there again, uh, you know, we went against the herd. Uh, in 2008, for instance, uh, with the meltdown of the economy uh, in 2009, everybody just uh, basically hunkered down. We didn't. Uh, we, we became very aggressive uh, in releasing in, in, the, in the Bakken. And at that time, uh, we picked up an additional 500,000 acres, uh, building an acre, acreage position to 1.2 million acres in the Bakken. And uh, so it's totally going against the grain again. Uh, and uh, But how could... The, so the thought uh, immediately had to go to, okay, you own all this acreage, how are you going to develop it, and how are you going to perfect it? You have to drill it or uh, under the lease terms or uh, let it go. And so at that time, uh, in 2007, we decided that, you know, we'd take the company public. And uh, so we did that in 2007, actually made decision in 2006, but we couldn't get there that year, so it was 2007 before we did. And we sold off about 15% of uh, Continental to the public to raise enough money to, to really develop that field. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, like I said, it's, it's off the races. You, you've got the cash that you need to, and you, you're developing as fast as possible, or you, you're getting after it, which is exciting. Yeah. That very exciting. It's very exciting. Uh, actually, uh, there's a long, long story on uh, why we price low, but... Uh, at the time, we had a couple of people that had, had drilled wells in the, in the western side of uh, the Nastanacline uh, that uh, had good good operators that uh, wasn't successful in the Bakken. And so we priced it $14, but then their stock uh, responded uh, quite well by, 2000, uh, by, by 2008. Uh, we were we were seeing stock prices up to eighty dollars a share. Yeah, uh, tremendous, tremendous mm-hmm. uh, growth, quick growth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and you said around two thousand ten, you, you know, you started realizing and started making a little bit of noise around the country, saying, you know, we can be energy dependent on ourselves. We've got this resource. Why are we, you know, through pol- politics and all the policies and whoever's coming in between now and two thousand ten. Why? My question is, why the book now? Why? Why? You know, how? How did you try and get the word out during that time? And you're dealing with politics and politicians and angles that they're pushing or whatever it is. Why now to release the book? You know, I thought that people would get a really good understanding of what drove uh, the energy renaissance, how America came back from uh, terminal decline that everybody thought we were in. Uh, to uh, a resurgence of uh, total uh, independence. And that's really where we are on a a BTU uh, basis today. Uh, Our country is totally energy independent. And uh, I wanted, I thought that everybody would know, but they don't. They don't understand how we got there, what single thing drove it. Mm And that single thing is horizontal drilling. Mm-hmm. And somebody asked me the other day, said, 
you capitalize uh, as a as a noun uh, horizontal drilling, and I said, really, it is. That's you know, it should be capitalized, and uh, that one single thing, it's a thing. Uh, you know, uh, made 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 it possible for us to be energy independent, and that story had to be told. In my estimation, people have to understand that. And along the line, <clears throat> it's such a, a miracle, if you will, how we went from terminal decline to energy independence. Uh, that a lot of people, uh, you know, tried to shut it down. Uh, you mentioned the Russians earlier, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, you know what's going on right now in, in Ukraine, and and. Uh, and how they've used uh, energy as a weapon against Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the Russians saw what we were doing with horizontal drilling as a threat to themselves with all the natural gas that they had. Uh, that if this spread around the world uh, and with what's going on, and so they they went on a propaganda campaign, spending over five hundred million dollars to disparage this industry and what we were doing. So there's been some things going on that really disparage uh, American energy, and they expected it. You know, to uh, you know, if it happened in Poland, for instance. Uh, then that could be a, a a threat to them internationally, and so that's that's one reason they uh, went on this five hundred million dollar campaign mm. uh, to disparage oil and gas. Yeah, well, and you know, as long as you've been in the business, you've seen this time and time again, right? Someone comes along, whoever it is that gets elected, or policies, and it changes, you know, for the good, for the bad. I'm sure there are times you're just tired of it, right? You're tired of dealing with it. You're like, we have a solution here. It's right in front of us. It's under the ground that we walk on and work on and live on. Why haven't we, have, why haven't we figured this out yet? You know, and sadly, you've got people pushing agendas through propaganda, social media, you know, because I learned so much by reading that book. You know, I, I, okay, I didn't grow up here, but I've been here long enough to know that all is pretty big in Oklahoma. Yeah. Um, but still, there were so many things in the book that I learned and stats and, you know, even talk about just... I know in the UK, my grandfather's a coal miner. So I know mm-hmm. a lot about how bad that is for not only personal, but obviously the pollution of the air and everything. And, you know, you look at China and, and talk about doing more coal here versus natural gas. It's, I'm sure it frustrates you to no end. No, it does. It's, uh, it's very frustrating to see what's going on in the rest of the world. We talk about, uh, you know, clean up the air and, uh, we can we can do so much over here. Uh, you know, we have cleanest air since the 1970s uh, with what's happened with clean burning natural gas displacing coal. Uh, yet uh, countries today like Pakistan is is going 100 percent coal, not uh, putting in any natural gas plants because they have that resource. They own that resource. And so they're going to use it mm-hmm. yeah. uh, for economic reasons. 
Yeah, that's that's kind of the that's the frustrating thing, right? That's kind of what probably gets you out of bed every day to really, you know, to give back and make a change and be louder and, and go forward. Because a lot of people could just, I don't want to deal with it. You know, I'm, you know, I've been successful. I've got all everything I could ever want, and I could ride off into the sunset and be on a beach somewhere. But you're not that person, and you know, for as long as you have a beating heart, you're going to be fighting for it and fighting for the jobs. And that's something I definitely learned in the book that, you know. Not a lot of people would have done this, do do the stuff that you do and continue to do the stuff that you yeah. do. Well, it, it makes you keep getting up in the morning. <laughs> right. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> that or the dog, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so you know, you, you decide then to really get involved, right? You're, you're meeting with politicians. You're, you're, you're on boards. You're really of value to anybody that will listen. Tell me about that journey. How has that been? Who have you met with, um, you know, good and bad that have you know, worked. And, and in the book, you mentioned flying to Canada, which seemed like a giant waste of time and then set you back, set, you know, just everybody back a bit. But it finally, they finally, they came around after pressure from um, Dakota. Yeah, and yeah it's a, well, what you find out is everything uh, uh, really is uh, controlled uh, politically. Mm-hmm. And uh, whether we like it or not, I mean, that that's really it. And we, we saw administration, uh, after administration, after administration, after administration, fumbled the ball, uh, particularly with uh, American energy. Uh, you know, I'd give you examples on both sides of, of the aisle. Uh, the Republicans, just bad as the Democrats. Uh, you know, for instance, Richard Nixon tried to keep everything uh, uh, under control. He, he put crude oil under price control uh, when it went from three, $3.75 a barrel to $4 in the early 70s, uh, he puts it under price controls, uh, which caused a lot of, lot of stripper wells to be plugged out, uh, which we drastically needed later in 1973 during the Iranian uh, crisis. When they cut off our oil supplies and uh, had people lined up at a service station for miles, uh, so that was a big foible. Well, Jimmy Carter was just as bad later on uh, when uh, he uh, passed the Fuel Use Act of 1977, which mandated 100% use of coal. Now, today you think about how silly that was. Uh, excluded the use of natural gas as a boiler fuel for power generation. And everybody was uh, telling them that, look, this is going to cause bad stuff uh, to happen, burn all the coal in the country. You can't breathe the air in St. Louis. Um, And you're causing uh, acid rain in Chicago, which it did. But it took 10 years to uh, reverse that bad policy, which Reagan did in 1987, uh, got rid of it, uh, but, you know, the damage had been done. And then, uh, of course, it kept the oil and gas industry held at bay for all that 10 years. It was really bad times. So anyway, you see administration after administration uh, use it for political, fo- political football. Uh, you know, it's just like Joe Biden uh, dumping the SPR to lower the price of gasoline. I mean, now the SPR, uh, 
which is meant for wartime emergencies, is empty. Well, I hope we don't <laughs> <It's kinda laughs> don't needed. need that. Yeah. That's the uh, reason it's in reserve, right? Yeah, we need some reserve. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, and, and you mentioned a lot of you know natural security, uh, national security, and, and just the safety of just people who live in this nation. If your enemies already know that, you know, like this, we have to have uh, national security. It means so much. Energy independence is, is so important, and one thing it means is world peace. Uh, <clears throat> much less uh, what we could do in in times of emergencies. It's just like. Uh, with Europe, uh, it would have been so cold last winter if it hadn't been for American LNG shipments. Uh, you know, one shipment of LNG would will keep a, a million homes heated in in England for a month. One shipment. Uh, Chenier uh, made 628 of those shipments last year to, to Europe. How important is that? Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I hear it from my parents. The energy costs are going up, you know, and you know, they're they're not too happy about it. And gas has always been expensive in the UK, always. You know, I come over here and they're asking me how much it costs me to fill up my gas tank. I'm like, you don't want to know because it's going to infuriate you. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, and like I said, you see it on a world scale, you know, it's you, the the, the level of the business that you're at, you know, and it's, you're not just taking care of, yes, ultimate goal is to take care of your country, you know, and, and the place that you live in the home, but also, you know, you see other nations struggling and you're like, this can be solved really quickly, you know, like, why aren't you listening? And then you look at, like I said, the administration and their kind of short-term views and they're not looking at it like, you know, you and other successful businessmen are looking at the thousand foot view of 10, 15 years, 20 years, 100 years down the road for the next generation, yeah. which is frustrating. It is. It is frustrating. And and uh, they certainly need to take a much longer mm-hmm. view and, and good and, you know, for the benefit of the nation. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So in the book, you talk about, um, you know, educating politicians and really going out of your way to do that. Um, and, and I guess you get a phone call from... Uh, the man with the very blonde hair and red tie and big power suit and says, come here, if you're in New York, come on by. And the thing that stood out to me is that he has a cookie jar that looks like his face in, in his office, <laughs> which I thought was really funny. Um, but tell me about kind of like, the was that kind of the first time when you met someone in power or someone that was potentially going to be in power that actually listened and was ready to implement, kind of take, did you? was that the time that you had a bit of a breakthrough when you well, there's sense. been uh, there've been several uh, uh, presidents that have listened, and you know, uh, from Bill Clinton to you know uh, uh, Bush Senior, uh, Bush Junior, uh, the Bushes could have could have uh, been more impactful with energy for sure. Uh, uh, and and not all all listened, uh, you know. Uh, trying to talk to Obama, uh, you know, like talking to a wall. He just even even though in 2012 we were telling him uh, the great potential that we had uh, with oil and gas, he wasn't interested. Uh, he said, "Well, you know, we may need." Uh, on gas for a few few years uh, here, but 
uh, you know, my Secretary Chu has told me that we're going to develop a battery soon uh, that can eliminate the need for fossil fuels. And, you know, that didn't happen. Yeah. Well, and there's this whole you know, movement around electric vehicles, and I don't think a lot of people realize what it takes to get to that battery, right? They just see the plug-in at the end. They don't see the process it takes <coughs> to, you know, mine whatever it is to mine to produce that battery and ship it halfway across the world and put it in a car and ship it back. And they don't, no one tells, you know, when someone goes and buys their electric car, they don't tell you that it's been shipped, the battery's been tanked across the, around the globe four or five times before it's been put in my car. Yeah, and, and the, it, it's, it's real strange to me, and maybe I'm looking at it a little bit different, but it's real strange to me that just at, as we become energy independent, then all of a sudden we've got to switch to EVs, uh, which we have none of those rare uh, metal elements. They all come from somewhere else, from China. Who owns all those rare elements? And now uh, here, here we go again. We're going to be uh, totally dependent on someone else. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's it, it's nonsensical to me. Mm-hmm. One of the great quotes that's in the book. Um, and it comes from the song Cowboy Logic, the one you're talking about. Um, simple solutions uh, are usually the best solutions from the song Cowboy Logic. <laughs> oh yeah, you know yeah. I, I yeah. that one struck out to me because you're right. Like, why are we overthinking things? Simple solutions, we have it. Let's move forward. Absolutely, yes. And, uh, no, that, I love that song. That stood out to me. And, and well, also you mentioned the EV thing, you know, and, and I think Toyota last year, a couple of years ago, finally just said. We're not doing it. It doesn't make sense to us. And a lot, you know, they were the first people to really stick their neck out and say, no, it doesn't matter if your political agenda says EVs are the way forward. For us as a business, it doesn't make sense. And, you know, that hopefully the dominoes will fall. And, you know, like, I'm a car guy. I love cars. I want the noise. I love driving fast when I'm allowed to. Um, and yes, you can do that in an electric car as well. But again, you know, there's so many things that come from you know, the dinosaur juice that comes out of the ground, right? This, everything. And people, I think, forget that, um, especially some of the activists that are around the world. That are- oil, oil and gas is natural. Yeah. It does. It comes from the earth. Uh, you know, and, and most of the things that uh, are good do. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, that's where your food comes from. Yeah. yeah. The, the other thing that stood out to me in the book is that where you mentioned kind of giving back and the speech that you give at Lexington. And you talk about your teacher, James Hunter, and his stories. And just that whole paragraph, you know, I, I, I got it. It's page 58, I think, is somewhere some of the stuff is in there. So much value from his story. And, and I remember, you know, you're, you're there and he's in the room. And um, of course, you could talk a little bit about kind of James's story and, and then your, your impact on future generations of what you said in that speech. Yes, uh, you know, James Hunter, uh, he's a great, great uh, person. Uh, I think he still had PTSD, uh, you know, when he was teaching us. And we got him to tell him the, the stories about his capture. He was held as a prisoner of war. And I think through telling those stories to us helped him tremendously. And he was, uh, he became one of the, uh, biggest, best leaders uh, that all of us kids knew. And uh, he was, he was quite tremendous. The guy's book in there, uh, 
ice cream in my refrigerator. Uh, take a look at it before you leave. Uh, so it was easy to talk to uh, those kids there at Lex. Uh, you know, you hope you just uh, inspire one of them uh, uh, or a few of them to uh, do the uh, to change the world, uh, and and who knows they very well might mm -hmm. and could. Uh, but it's uh, 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 yes, it's so necessary uh, uh, to teach. Uh, you know, whether it's high school, college, uh, whatever. Uh, the best work that we've been able to, I've been able to. My family's been able to is establish some of the uh, a different uh, scholarship uh, awards and with uh, several colleges um, uh, across the nation and uh, allow uh, kids that couldn't go to school to be able to get, a, get an education. And uh, so... I don't know. I, I enjoy talking to those classes. Yeah. Uh, I've done that a lot in North Dakota and here in Oklahoma. And uh, it's uh, uh, perhaps they may not want to listen to me as much as I think they do. <laughs> but, uh, anyway, uh, it's uh, particularly, uh, you know, when you're, when you're talking uh, to kids, it's, uh, first they're going to throw their caps in the air. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're they're ready to go on right. and not listen to me. But anyway, it's fun going back to Lex and 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 doing that uh, talk to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the things that stood out to me and a quote from the book it says, um, "Passion is always more important than privilege." And you know, you're telling young kids, right, or anyone who reads the book, really, you're telling, "Hey, find your passion, whatever it is." And you know, some sometimes it, it you find it straight away. You know, you have a Frank comes in and you, you, it kind of hits you and you have this moment. Yeah. But others, it takes 30 years to find your passion. But once you do, you know. Yeah. Uh, and we see a lot of people at different ages uh, uh, that, that uh, discover their passion and uh, it's tremendous. And, you know, Garth Brooks' uh, song, Don't Miss the Dance, uh, whatever you do, uh, you know, it, it, there. You, you may have a calling that you don't even realize uh, that you have and do do not miss the dance. Mm -hmm. so. yeah. The other thing that uh, I'd love for you to talk about is is the Ham Institute for American Energy. Going forward, how do you, you know, entice young kids coming out of college, right, or coming out of high school that want to get in the energy business? Because right now, a lot of people want to be a YouTuber. They want to be on TV. They want to play on their phone. The last thing they probably want to do is be an engineer or be in petroleum, but tell me a little bit about kind of that goal of yours to, to build the future generation and, and the next you. Well, it's a lot of fun. Uh, first of all, um, you know, there's, there's, there's so, so many people have the, what I call the roughneck mentality of oil and gas. They don't realize how much sophistication is out there within our industry. Uh, you know, those kids that want to be on computers and all that, you know, come come to work for us. Uh, I mean, that's that's really where it's at. Uh, Connell is uh, deep into AI, mm -hmm. uh, realizing the possibilities, what it'll do to increase production, uh, in, in productivity, 
efficiency. Um, so it's here. I mean, you, you go out on a, a modern drilling location, drilling rig operation today, and and see what's going on, how you're steering uh, the drill bit down there, 20 to 30,000 foot out. Uh, it, it is totally amazing. It's, it's like something in outer space. Um, you know, these control centers, uh, what's going on. And, you know, so it's so much fun uh, to teach, to change these young people's uh, outlook on oil and gas today. Mm-hmm. And, and it's also fun to teach them that, look, uh, oil and gas can be around for a, a lot, many decades. It's not going away. Uh, a lot of people thought, and with COVID, that you know, with oil and gas uh, production and demand, it peaked. Mm-hmm. What well, hasn't? Uh, it continues to grow, and and uh, doing some tremendous things mm-hmm. uh, today with uh, natural gas and and light light sweet crude. So in the world, uh, so it's a it's a fun thing. Uh, the Ham Institute. Uh, let's us uh, reach reach those folks. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're planning the summit uh, here September 25th that has so many international players coming in. It's unreal. Uh, so it's uh, it's going to be quite uh, yeah. quite the event. Yeah, and it's not only in Oklahoma that you're doing this, right? You know, you have your you know, um, I think it started with you kind of saving the Phillips School in Enid, and then you have in North Dakota you have you know geology. Institutions, and it's not just here. You know, you you share you share your love for the places that have that have shown you love over the years, and and that's really nice to see. It 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 is. Uh, you know, we had uh, three three legs were stool, uh, and with our foundation, of course, is energy advocacy. That's uh, where the Ham Institute comes in. Education. Uh, you know, that began a long time ago with with me, and of course, the other one is health. And with what we're doing uh, in the health sector, mm-hmm. a lot of things could be done, uh, uh, w- remain to be done yet, uh, mm-hmm. find a cure for diabetes. Um, you know, some of the things we've, done, we've worked on, though, and been highly successful is getting the cost of insulin lowered mm-hmm. uh, nationally. So this has it's been huge, uh, where people didn't have to ration insulin. Uh, so... That's just uh, one of the one yeah. of the many things. That Which that's about. a personal journey for you, you know, the, the type two diabetes and personal. You know, that's that's very you know, it's, that's personal. It is very prevalent. You, so uh, very involved. Very involved in that. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, yeah. yeah. That's brilliant. Uh, so finishing up, I want to talk about some fun things. You love flying. Yes. <laughs> and I think it sounds in the book. It sounds like you were. Not forced, but asked politely to not fly anymore out of the safe due to safety. Yeah, that was uh, was kind of forced. Uh, you know, the uh, my board uh, felt like that uh, I was too important to mm-hmm. you know uh, be pilot in a single engine airplane. And, yeah, and different things. Uh, I'd, I'd work my way up. You know from. Single engine all the way through jet rating, uh, and uh, love flying. Mm-hmm. Yes, in the book, it's you, you talk about flying uh, biplanes with Bill and doing barrel rolls and twists and stuff, and kind of moments where you kiss the ground once you land. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, it's a it's a good times. Uh, uh, yeah, there was this biplane is built at there in Enid by uh, Champlin Enterprises, and uh, it's a lot of fun to fly. Yeah, had pretty good power on yeah. it. And, so, and, and you still travel quite a lot, and you know, sure, company has a plane. Do you ever scratch the itch? Do you ever say, "Hey, can we just sit in the pilot seat and take off and fly with the guys?" Oh, they'd let me if they'd uh, let you. Yeah, they would. Yeah, but, uh, it's it's uh, also fun to sit in the back seat. So. Yeah, We've got great pilots and and good airplanes, and we do we yeah. have traveled a lot. I fly about every day. Yeah, somewhere. The other thing that stood out um, is that you walk five miles a day, and you have a dog called Coda. Yes. How's life with the dog? Are you still walking five miles a day? I do. I walk this morning, and yeah. uh, uh, I get ten thousand steps every day. Okay. And so, through the through the month, uh, I'll average ten, twelve thousand every right. day. Uh, so enjoy doing that. Stay in shape. Work out some. And my dog, he he loves it. Yeah, he loves to go to the park. Uh-huh. Goes golden retriever? Is that what you have? No, he's no? a he's no yellow lab. Okay, yeah, yellow lab. And, and I use him uh, hunting, uh, quail hunting, bird uh-huh. hunting, pheasant hunting, and uh, he's he's uh, he, he's he's the best dog I've ever had. Uh-huh. Yeah. In in the book, it talks about is a chat. You know, a little section of the book talks about your big thoughts, and it's on page two fifty eight for people listening. When you get the book, look at it because it lines out. Just things that you know um, that are valuable to you. You know, never be about money. Um, health is a big one. Lead by example. You know, decide daily uh, your main thing. Like those eight to ten. I won't read them all, but that was huge for me as well. Reading that and seeing those, and just seeing how you know to to break down your life and see what's important, even just to the daily and obviously working out and walking 10,000 steps a day. There's a lot of people that don't do that. And, you know, it's, that's obviously something that's extremely important going forward and something that you value as well. Yeah. I, I think everybody probably comes to a, a point in their life uh, that, you know, you, you get into uh, personal improvement. Mm-hmm. Uh, I certainly did. I, I'm glad it was somewhat early on. <laughs> Uh, and you know it's uh, uh, you know so you start you start picking up all those things uh, that are real meaningful and meaningful to you and mm-hmm. and uh, uh, and then developing uh, all those principles integrity and everything you st- can uh, think of there in that list uh, is. Uh, you know, become part of your life and the way you do business and and conduct your life. So, yeah. uh, you know, you have to to be progressive uh, and get things done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or I did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Uh, finishing up, last question. You were inducted into Oklahoma Hall of Fame in 2011. Tell me about that phone call. How was that moment? And then who into who uh, introduced you on stage that day? Well, David Bourne did. Okay. Uh, you know, uh, uh, he did a tremendous job, much better job than I did uh, accepting that award. But uh, it, it meant a, a, a great deal to me uh, to be a part of that group, uh, wonderful group of people. And uh, so that 
there's several awards that have been a great deal to me. Horatio Alger was another one. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that's the most exclusive club in the world. Okay. Uh, you know, uh, the 800 people that have been Horatio Alger members. Uh, so several of these very important awards uh, have been a, been a, a, mm-hmm. a great deal to me. Yeah. Uh, yeah, your, your uh, office has got so many great things around here and and i love that you know you never forget where you came from you know once a bulldog always a bulldog right you have the some lexington stuff in the background as well as you know your medallion field Home hall of fame and some other awards that you've been given as well as some some helmets from uh, ou and osu so it's uh, it's really nice to sit in here i can't thank you enough for, for an hour of your time i know you're extremely busy and, and for people listening august 1st the book comes out game changer and the link to the book will be in the description um, and yeah thank you so much for your time really appreciate it well th- thank you so much and thank you for reading and and, uh you know it's uh it's been an enjoyable hour uh with you you and uh you did your homework i did i had to (laughs) (laughs) i appreciate your time for everyone listening we'll catch you next episode cheers thank you appreciate it Hope you guys enjoyed that great episode. Thank you so much for listening. As always, huge shout out to our sponsors, the Oklahoma Hall of Fame, share an Oklahoma story through its people since 1927. For more information on the Oklahoma Hall of Fame, go to www.oklahomahof.com and follow them on Instagram for daily updates at oklahomahof. Our other sponsor, the Chickasaw Nation, amazing sponsor they do amazing things for the state and they're always sponsoring something in oklahoma they're a huge supporter of oklahoma and without their support we wouldn't be able to do what we do and our third sponsor is diffie ford lincoln down in el reno now this one makes me so happy because these guys are great friends of mine um play a lot of golf together i've bought my cars from them do most of my oil changes down there, have a cup of coffee, hang out down in El Reno. It's a good spot to go. And not only are they great friends, but they provide a great service. So for over 60 years, a third generation family owned Oklahoma business down in El Reno. They're also in Bethany as well. So people in the Bethany area know the Diffies really well. But if you're looking for anything new used, um, Ford, Lincoln, or whatever, I'm sure they could find anything you want. Um, check them out, diffieford.net, and then on Instagram at diffiefordlincoln. This episode is brought to you by Hope is Alive. Hope is Alive exists to radically change the lives of drug addicts, alcoholics, and those who love them. Join us on August 11th at the National Cowboy and Western Heritage Museum for a celebration of hope featuring guest speaker Tim Tebow and musical artist Ben Fuller. Find out more and get your tickets at hia10.com. Thank you for listening. We are inspired by those around us and hope that you are too. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review so we can keep telling your stories. For more great Oklahoma content, follow This Is Oklahoma on Facebook and Instagram.